0: You've got to understand risk to regulate effectively, and you've got to be disciplined about focusing on the big risk and focusing on not whether I can make the perfect case for prosecution, but how quickly can I intervene to prevent the disaster or at least greatly minimize it. The idea of getting left to boom is most of us read left to right and when we do that the thing at the end of the chart is the boom and so you want to intervene before the boom
1: what i have said is that this campaign is not just about electing a president it is about making a political revolution
0: And see if we can avoid the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro & Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine.
2: All right, this is Steve with Macro & Cheese. We've talked about the Silicon Valley Bank several different times in several different ways. We recently talked with Brian Romanchuk to discuss his view of basic bankruptcies and bank failures 101. Today, I'm bringing on Bill Black. Bill's been around doing good work since the savings and loan crisis, he's been front and center with the great financial crisis. And we're going to talk about what a real regulatory body might look like that was effective, that had the primary purpose of stopping banks from doing things that they shouldn't do, and maybe looking at what banks should do. It's been a while since I talked to him. If you haven't checked it out, we have an entire series called The New Untouchables. He's been part of the con. He has done so many things with Paul J over at the Real News and the analysis. And every time he speaks, it's worth listening. Bill, thank you so much for joining me today, sir. Thank you. It's good to be back. Absolutely. I keep hearing people talking about bonds and the different yields. Everybody's focused on the technocratic details of what occurred. I want our conversation today to focus on what a meaningful regulatory body would look like. And that includes staffing, funding, primary purpose. I want to know what it would look like to rein this leviathan in, to actually have it under the oversight of people that understand not only what the bankers are doing, but the sneaky things they do and how we can prosecute white-collar crime. Why don't you set the stage? Tell me how it went wrong. Why is this banking system so unbelievably in disarray?
0: So there's two basic reasons and you need different approaches to deal with both. One is that they have actually made that phrase real, too big to fail. That doesn't quite mean what people think it means. And words, the institution may still fail. But the creditors will overwhelmingly get bailed out. And if the creditors are overwhelmingly getting bailed out by us, the insurance fund or express bailout from treasury, then really, really bad things have happened. So when you allow these institutions that you simply can't basically shoot, (laughs) then they hold the economy hostage. And nowadays they hold the global economy hostage. And if you hold the global economy hostage, you hold global politics hostage. So that needs to be fixed. And the way to fix that is not to allow such institutions, right? (laughs) Duh. (laughs) And the good news is those institutions are phenomenally inefficient. So the economic world would be better if we didn't have them as well. And politics would be better, et cetera. The second problem is not so much deregulation. That's the words you always hear, but you've listened to me. I always emphasize the three Ds, deregulation, desupervision, and de facto decriminalization. And it's the second two that are the biggest problem as opposed to deregulation. So, for example, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, it's absolutely true, as the Democrats have been talking about, that the change in the law under the Trump administration that deregulated this cutoff point for these too-big-to-fail institutions, and said, "Uh, no, we're gonna let it go up to $250 billion. (laughs) and on the theory that we were doing this to protect tiny community banks. (laughs) Gotta love it, right? Yes. It's so transparently stupid. Okay, so a couple of things. First, let's recognize that this was substantially bipartisan. The only way Trump could do that was with substantial Democratic support, which he got. Second, it wasn't really the issue because that was just where you automatically had to apply certain tests, particularly the stress test. And without getting in the weeds, here's what all these institutions have in common. Fannie, Freddie, Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, AIG the big three Icelandic banks, and a host of others. They all passed stress tests with flying colors just before they crashed and burned. Oof. Stress tests don't check whether you can survive a run, (laughs) which is the thing that typically kills you. Quickest at least, right? So that's kind of a big gap, and maybe it was intentional. (laughs) <laughs> because the stress tests were designed as propaganda to say, look, we've made the bank so much safer. They could survive all this stuff. And just to go back, because Fannie and Freddie were great at one thing, well, two things, lobbying and propaganda, and propaganda for lobbying, Uh huh. Fannie and Freddie convinced most of the world that their stress tests were so severe that they were analogous to a nuclear winter scenario. (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, of course, they were dead long before the great financial crisis occurred. They were deeply, deeply insolvent. Okay, so first, it wasn't important that they were removed from the stress test because the stress tests are worthless. And in particular, they're worthless about the thing that killed them, which is a liquidity crisis, which is when everybody goes, Hey, maybe I'm not gonna get paid. This place is insolvent, duh. Maybe I should take my money out, especially if my money's uninsured, which Silicon Valley Bank, over two thirds of its depositors were uninsured. So it was like, duh, we could lose 200 million billion. Oh, we could take the money out. I wonder <laughs> what we'll do. And remember, the guys, and they're almost all guys, taking the money out, not only are they taking it out electronically, they're not waiting in line or outside the branch, right? Right. But they're also treasurers. They're corporate treasurers. They've got codes. Three keystrokes and the $200 million is gone from the bank. Oops. <laughs> so people haven't focused on that. And that's crazy because... Put this under the general theme when you fail to learn lessons from catastrophes, you get bigger and longer and repeated catastrophes. So, the greatest run in world history, and it wasn't close, occurred in the great financial crisis. Before the great financial crisis, the biggest run had been ballpark ish $6 billion. And in the great financial crisis, the biggest run was. Know what it was? And you follow finance. The housing market. Nope. It was money market mutual funds. No kidding. And I won't explain it, but I'll just tell you that among professional economists, the FDIC is the great Satan because it allegedly gets rid of private market discipline, which would otherwise keep us safe in a wonderful laissez-faire world and the ideal place therefore would be one that had no deposit insurance oh i know money market mutual funds
2: interesting
0: in fact it had the world's largest run by incredible margin and it was saved only by us providing them federal deposit insurance
2: (laughs) it's interesting you're saying that because a great many people, in fact, many people, even within the MMT world, pushing for all deposits to be insured 100%, that there should be no limit on FDIC. What are your thoughts on that?
0: That's not a very good idea at all, and it massively compounds the too-big-to-fail problem and creates a raft of bad incentives. But the worst idea is getting rid of deposit insurance. <laughs> you know, So it's one of these things where the answer is more like Goldilocks. Not the biggest, not the smallest, somewhere in between. And there's no perfect answer. And we shouldn't worry too much about whether it's 250 or 230 or 260. 250,000 is the current limit per institution. And sometimes per type of account, it's actually kind of complicated. We'll avoid those weeds. Okay. (laughs) So back to the second big thing that can take down institutions is a bunch of different risks. And here's the key. If you were creating a regulatory agency that was designed to, hey, I'm going to use a national security term, get left a boom. Hmm. Maybe in Hebrew it would be right of boom, <laughs> right? But, the idea of getting left to boom, of course, is most of us read left to right, and when we do that, the thing at the end of the chart is the boom. <laughs> right. And so you want to intervene before the boom. That's what we learned. I got it now. Yes. And by the way, this is a serious thing, because one of the views in 9-11 report was that the FBI was too concerned with whether it could make a perfect case to prosecute. And the folks said, yeah, that's important, but it's actually kind of more important to stop them from flying planes into huge buildings and killing thousands of people. Yeah. And the FBI went, uh, yeah, (laughs) that makes sense. (laughs) So that's our job as regulators. We would like to get left to boom. We'd want to prevent the failure. And failing that, we want to minimize the cost and harm of the failure. And if the failure occurs, we also then want to prosecute the people if it's appropriate because they've committed crimes, because that's the only way you can even possibly deter this stuff in the past. So you've got to understand risk to regulate effectively. And you've got to be disciplined about focusing on the big risks and focusing on not whether I can make the perfect case for prosecution, but how quickly can I intervene to prevent the disaster or at least greatly minimize it? So here's the short version with the technocratic thing and how it fits into regulation okay risk is not risk is not risk risks vary for example if you prudently as a bank take credit risk by underwriting by having systems by monitoring your loans the expected value that means the weighted probability is you make money as a bank. (laughs) But that's what we like. Sure. We don't want the bank to fail. The bank has to make money. It's in it for a profit and such. So credit risk is what banks ought to be taking. And they should be doing it prudently. In the great financial crisis and in the savings and loan debacle, of course, they did no such thing. Because when you loot an institution, you deliberately Hey, that's not a risk. Enormous risk. Yeah, that's actually it's kind of a different risk. We call it operational risk. And the expected value of operational risk is therefore not positive, but. Very negative. Very negative. So do we want banks to be taking any significant operational risk? No, no. If banks start taking very large amounts of operational risk, should we go, well, we're not sure whether you have adequate capital to be taken? No. (coughs) Oh, no. You say no. You can't do that. We will stop you. We will put you out of business. We will bring enforcement actions against you. If the operational risk is you looting the place, we'll put you in prison. That's what you do. In a system, you differentiate between the risks. So, what blew up Silicon Valley Bank? Well, that was the first act of the savings and loan debacle. It's called interest rate risk. An interest rate risk. Again, I have to take a little bit into the weeds because this one's counterintuitive. Most people think, "Oh, interest rates went up; bonds must be worth more." You know, they're higher interest rates. Except it. Your bond? (laughs) No, you bought a thirty-year bond. It's fixed rate; it doesn't go up in interest rate. So the guys that bought the next day after interest rates say doubled, they're getting twice the yield you are. So can you sell your bond to somebody else for the face value of that bond, which by the way is ten thousand bucks? No, because you ain't earning even close to a market value return. Uh So you lose a ton of money on your bond. So that's market value as opposed to book accounting value, which is whatever you bought it at. It's also called original cost. That's an example of the difference between market value, which might be $5,000 on your bond versus your book value of $10,000. Therefore, is taking interest rate risk a good thing the way credit risk prudently taken is a good thing well here's a thought experiment what would happen if taking interest rate risk had a positive expected value you're betting on which way interest rates were going to go and your expected outcome was you'd make a profit from doing that hmm if somebody could do that what would we call that person? A genius? Oh, no. Do we call them the ruler of the world? Uh, That's true. Because they'd have all the wealth of the world. Or if they were willing to sell it, all of us would buy his or her magic, whatever it was that told them interest rates. And we'd all be rich. (laughs) The entire world would be rich. And it would happen within weeks. It'd be great. (laughs) So we don't live in that world, right? And we will never live in that world. because That's not how things work. So we don't want banks to take significant interest rate risk. Why? Now here's a fancy word. Because the risk and return are asymmetrical from the standpoint of the government. What happens if you do what Silicon Valley Bank officers notice i'm emphasizing officers i'm not going to talk about the bank having incentives because banks don't have incentives only people do or animals do too but (laughs) let's assume that the bankers are people not animals (laughs) all right so if you win your bet at silicon valley bank well the bet they made they took a lot of interest rate risk by buying bonds that had a stated yield of about (laughs) 1.8%. That means if they win their bet, Silicon Valley bank gets a hundred million dollars more, maybe. And if they lose their bet, well, they bet the bank and the whole 200-plus-billion-dollar bank goes insult. And do they have 200 billion shareholders? Are they protected by something called limited liability? Yep. (laughs) They're not responsible for the losses of the corporation by law. So this is deeply asymmetrical. If they win, they keep the money, and it's not very much. And if they lose... We lose the money. So should we allow this bet? No. no. Hell no. <laughs> no. And do we hem and haw and say, oh, it's just a paper loss. Oh, these are good assets. What do you mean it's a good asset? It's got a market value half of what you paid for it. <laughs> right. That sounds like a really crappy asset. And you know what? You'd have to report if we had any real accounting you were massively insolvent, which is what Silicon Valley Bank was. So we have rules, generally accepted accounting principles and the generally accepted accounting principle in general <laughs> says, ah, eh, you don't have to recognize the loss. Wow. Now that's a stupid rule from the standpoint of a regulator and an FDIC insurer, right? And guess what? The banking regulatory agencies don't have to follow GAP. Wow. They can create, and have always done so, regulatory accounting principles that could be protective against this BS. So you could stop the incentive to play these games. Now, I said this bet was really weirdly asymmetrical and no bank, if the bank actually were animate, would ever take a risk the way silicon valley bank did but the officers they have immensely perverse incentives because if they take interest rate risk by buying higher yield paper higher interest rate treasuries or mortgage-backed securities which is what they did at silicon valley bank then the bank reports more income under GAP, even though it's actually lost money. Wow. Because of the loss of market value. Baseball been very, very good to me. Wow. (laughs) And therefore, there's an incredibly perverse incentive if you're the officers to pile on interest rate risk. And it's a sure thing. On an accounting basis, you will, at least in the early months and sometimes early years, report. Higher income, even though you actually bankrupted the bank. <laughs> wow! And guess who gets a lot of money when you do that? The guys that own it. No, no, no! The officers, bonuses. Well, no, 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 no! This can be very bad for the owners, <laughs> but for the officers, it's a another example of a sure thing. But these clowns, because. Silicon Valley Bank was an absolute clown car. Clearly. Complete with bozo noses and such, right? (laughs) If you can't get this one right, this is the test of how far regulation has fallen. And they didn't even come close to getting it right. Okay. So Silicon Valley Bank did an interesting twist on all of this. We have special accounting rules if you hedge. We want to encourage you to hedge because edging is one way of dramatically reducing interest rate risk. And Silicon Valley Bank actually did some hedging, not remotely enough, <laughs> right. but it actually did some hedging. And I won't take you in the weeds, but I'll give you the conclusion. The principal way you hedge in the modern era is something called an interest rate swap and i will tell you the proverbial bottom line on this as your fixed rate treasury or mortgage-backed security loses market value because the interest rates are going up your hedge goes up in value and that could If you bought a big enough hedge, counteract the interest rate risk. Neutralize it is the jargon. And you could be safe and prudent. But what would the fun of that be? Because then all your profits would go away from this accounting game I talked about. So first, they bought a hedge that was not remotely big enough. But here comes the really fun stuff. Remember, I said the hedge will go up in value and you're not recognizing the loss on the other side, the market value loss of having this fixed rate treasury that's losing value as interest rates increase. So here's what you do. And Silicon Valley did it. You sell the hedge. You sell the interest rate swap and you take the gain. On the interest rate swap, which has gone up in value. Oh my God. But of course, the gain is only one tenth of what you would need. But all of that flows into income and bing, 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 triple double on your bonus. Yes. You make a better quarter. So they also, being a clown car, decided you know what we really, really don't need? And we could save so much money. We don't need no stinking chief risk officer.
2: Oh, my goodness.
0: So for nine months, nine months, a 200 plus billion dollar institution taking fatal levels of interest rate and liquidity risk said, we don't need no stinking chief risk officer. And the regulators went mumble, 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 mumble. So what do you need as a regulator? First, you need to understand these things. So, you got to actually be technically competent. But that's not remotely sufficient. You have to then actually believe in regulation.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's a big one.
0: So, we believed in regulation, we regulated the savings and loan industry under Ronald Reagan, who was super pissed. So one of the first things they did when they got the major legislation was not fix the savings and loan crisis, but fix the problem of regulatory independence. (laughs) They got rid of our agency as an independent regulatory agency and put us within Treasury. Wow. Because we had been effective. Not because we had been ineffective (laughs) in dealing with the crisis that we inherited when people like me came to the agency in 1984. Sure. So what would you do? Well, we do what we did in 1984, right? Okay. We're not geniuses. In 1984, and we didn't invent it in 1984. We inherited it, right? I'm not claiming credit for this we would have regular reports. And in particular, we would have two reports with regard to interest rate risk. One, how insolvent was the place on a market value basis? Two, if interest rates increased by 1%, 2%, 4%, 6%, how much more insolvent would the savings loan in that case be, right? Guess what? Have you seen those two charts?
2: No, I have not.
0: No. And they're not secret because they're collated. They're combined. You don't find the individual institution. You could have that for the entire industry. Those would be the two charts you would absolutely need. Now, the next thing is the old joke about never missing a chance to miss a chance. (laughs) After the great financial crisis, they said, you know what really needs to happen in supervision? We need to give the economist more power. Now, the economist had been the problem at all times in central financial regulation. Uh Uh-huh. And so the answer was to give more power to the people who are the problem. And as I say, get rid of any independence and put you inside Treasury. Okay. So they created FSOC, Financial Stability Oversight Council, which is the Economist's Dream. They're supposed to be this cloister of monks that do deep thoughts and deep research and are always looking for the next problem before it occurs so you aren't being generals fighting the last war. And then they're supposed to come out with real answers to how to intervene to get left a boom so that there isn't a problem except that economists are the last people in the world to think that way. So I will now paraphrase, but it's almost a direct quote, what FSOC did when it did circa 2014, a special report to Congress on interest rate risk, forward thinking. And it said, as I say, this is almost a direct quotation, and the entire substance of the recommendation, one, banks should continue to monitor interest rate risk. <laughs> Two, regulators should continue to monitor interest rate risk. Well, thank you. Blinding flash, of the obvious. Whoa, what a PhD in economics will do for you. <laughs> okay, so that's useless, right? And it's deliberately useless. So you're not even trying. And then they did, because they're economists, 75 PowerPoint slides, (laughs) of which exactly zero included the two slides you needed, which is how big are the market value losses due to interest rate risk and how much will they increase? And if you want to get wonky because banks can play yet another accounting game i haven't described they can move these assets from different accounts (laughs) some of which they can vary the loss for nearly forever (laughs) and others where they can recognize a gain due to interest rate changes (laughs) that are in their favor Uh right so you might also want to chart on how many people were gaming the system and if you had extra time, you'd do a chart on how many people were gaming it by inadequately doing hedges like interest rate swaps that I just described, and then selling the swap prematurely to book a gain when there was actually a loss, net, net, due to interest rate risk. I've not heard a single treasury or regulator talk about any of those charts, or, frankly, those
1: issues. You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT, or Modern Monetary Theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube. And follow us on Periscope, Twitter, Twitch, Rockfin, and Instagram.
2: if i am a person that's planning to create a regulatory environment for this space we need people we need money we need tools we need laws and access that support our mission and then we need the green light From whoever we report to, whether it be the president, the treasury secretary, we need to have the buy-in that our mission matters and that we're free to conduct our operations as we require. How would you structure a regulatory environment in terms of staffing and ratios between institutions? It seems like. We underfund these kind of efforts. We understaff them and then don't allow them to do their jobs. What would an effective regulatory agency look like?
0: Okay. So part of that was like consultant speak. <laughs> okay. And that's the worst thing in the world that you would want to do. And it's therefore, of course, their absolute default. That's exactly how they would phrase it, except for the people part. Okay, so let me tell you what worked. First, it was 95% people, maybe 98% people, in terms of changing things in the savings and loan debacle. And it's easy to see, because when you change from Dick Pratt, the libertarian economist and creature of the industry, to Ed Gray, it takes about six months, but that's when you get the complete change. And Ed Gray was a personal friend, not just a Politico, a personal friend, not only of Ronald Reagan, but Nancy Reagan, which in this world was actually very important. And despite that, and despite the fact that he knew that Ronald Reagan would hate what he was doing, He re regulated and re supervised the industry because he felt that's what Ronald Reagan would have done if Ronald Reagan was willing to be open to the facts. Interesting way of phrasing it, right? Uh huh. Second thing, which we could do now, and which any president could do Ed Gray proceeded to ask everybody he ran into who was in a position to give substantive guidance, who are the two best financial supervisors in America. And then he personally recruited them and hired them and put them in the two epicenters of the savings and loan debacle. So they're almost always epicenters. It's almost always not just randomly split in geographic terms in the United States. So you look for where the problem is worst, you get the best people, you put them there and you tell them, change it, fix it. I don't want process. I don't want tons of reports. I want you to fix it. You do what you need to do to do that. So they proceeded to recruit people as well. And because they had stellar reputations, guess what? People want to work for people with stellar reputations who are actually going to do something. So that gets you through much of the stuff. And Now, there were innumerable things that Gray had to deal with that even with the craziness of the modern era, you wouldn't have to deal with because the Reagan administration was insane. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it wasn't just the Reagan administration. It was the Democrat leadership as well. So when Gray started to re-regulate and close the worst thrifts, because when you're being looted by the CEO, every day you stay open can be tens of millions of dollars in additional losses. Hmm. So you really, really want to prioritize those and you want to take chances. You want to put them in receivership before you have the perfect case made. Because the perfect case might be three years from now. And at $10 million a day in additional losses, that would be insane. So you have to get people who are not only good, but are willing to take chances. Prudent chances that make sense, who are willing to lose sometimes, to fail sometimes, to do these things. Okay. Gray does that. And (laughs) the... OMB, Office of Management and Budget, threatens to make a criminal referral against Gray, personally, Mm. on the grounds that he was putting too many insolvent thrifts into receivership. Wow. The next time someone tells you that the regulators were always pushing for forbearance, That was the predecessor. That was the economist, Dick Pratt. (laughs) The opposite under Ed Gray. And the second is when we went forward with regulations, Charles Keating that you mentioned had so much political juice that within three weeks of beginning the effort, he got a majority of the House of Representatives. Wow. Hear that statement, a majority of the members of the House of Representatives to not just vote in favor of, to co-sponsor a resolution calling on us to back off of re-regulation. And that wasn't just a majority. It was the entire leadership of both parties. And Ed Gray, therefore, said no to a president that he loved. No to threats that they would criminally prosecute him for doing his job. And no to a majority of the House, including the bipartisan unanimity of the leadership of the House, telling him not to go forward. So one Ed Gray is worth 2,000 of these useless people that want careers. Now, this ended Ed Gray's career. The two people that were the best supervisors in America, one was Joe Selby. He, in fact, was the most distinguished. And Gray put him in the absolute worst place, which in the savings and loan debacle was Texas. Mm. And with the substantial aid of Jim Wright, a Democrat, Speaker of the House, Selby was forced out on the grounds that he was a homosexual. Beginning to sound like familiar times? Yeah, wash, rinse repeat. And Mike Patriarca had his jurisdiction removed over Lincoln's savings when the five U.S. senators, the Keating Five and Jim Wright, came together to extort Gray's predecessor, who of course came to that kind mm-hmm. of pressure. So You should not assume that you can create something that works for all time as a regulatory apparatus. Eventually, there will be times when there will be people in who give in to political pressure, who have career aspirations. We at the big law firm I started at always referred to the thing that was my greatest skill as a CLG a career-limiting gesture. (laughs) And we were all very good at CLGs. And that's what you need. People quite willing to have their career in that field in. But they're dedicated to the public and they won't give in to the intimidation. Now, the other thing that you've talked about is true and is particularly important on a long-run basis. And that is budget. And there's actually a term in criminology for this, and it's the deliberate creation of systems incapacity. And it is political. For 30 years, the House of Representative Republicans have had an unholy war against the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Commodities Future Trading Commission at the behest of very rich investors who do not want honest markets. And so even today, when overwhelmingly trading is done by these ultra fast methods, they have denied the SEC and the CFTC sufficient budget to even get computers that could possibly monitor the trades. They want to make it impossible for the SEC to get left to boom. So sometimes it is political. And that is why Senator Warren put the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, CFB, in the Fed. Because the Fed, of course, makes profit, huge profit. And so Congress couldn't deny the fed budget because the fed doesn't have a budget from congress and the republicans have always hated that and are continuing to make efforts and let me now bring up the third huge new problem that's going to get vastly bigger and that is the federal judiciary oh yes particularly under this new supreme court they are determined to make effective regulation illegal not impossible unlawful so they are bringing back their own version of substantive due process in which they say no you shouldn't be able to constrain that because you have a market right to do these things and no, you can't use regulators to do regulations. It's an important issue. They're creating a new doctrine and on important issues, only Congress can proceed and it can only proceed by statute. Now Congress has no ability to do the regulations necessary. And that was when Congress was semi-functional and now in the house It's a clown power show again, right? Again, a literal clown show with public urination discussions (laughs) Like go on for 20 minutes. (laughs) So we are not going to be able, as regulators, we're going to have to either win the judiciary. We have to save the judiciary if you want to save American democracy. Democrats have been way too quick to say, oh, you know, we've won. A number of these things, yes, but that tells you how ultra-extreme Trump's positions were, that there was no conceivable way. And even then, you saw that one judge that was dealing with the warrant, the seizure of the information, who created new procedures and tried to win for Trump. Anyway, what we're seeing is fantastically anti-regulatory, but also... Extreme hostility against convicting elite white collar criminals among the Trump appointees and indeed the Bush appointees before then. So we're going to have to have ferocious rearguard strategies unless and until we can save the judiciary and save democracy in America.
2: You're talking about it, but Congress doesn't understand money. And they have Article 1, Section 8 driving their purpose as they are the ones in control of the purse strings. They clearly do not really understand banking. They're reliant on people in industry to advise them about this stuff. We have to have representatives to debate or go through whatever process. But are these people really the people we need doing this? They don't have any (laughs) pre-knowledge to even judge whether they're being
0: hoodwinked. True, but... To be serious, it was easy to find Mike Patriarca. Okay, fair enough. After the great financial crisis. And you knew when President Obama didn't seek out any of us, that they didn't want to succeed, and they had no clue how you would succeed. You have to remember that the Democrats went all in on reinventing government. Mm -hmm. And that the purpose of reinventing government was to make sure we would not get left at boom. So I left the government when it became clear they had made it impossible for me to succeed. Going forward, when they told us, and this wasn't some general advisory, this was official training on how under reinventing government, we were to be regulators, which became an oxymoron. And the phrase, (laughs) which I heard personally in not some casual conversation, but in their official training was, we were to treat the bankers as our customers. That is virtually word-to-word quotation. And the customer always right? Well, you don't mess with (laughs) customers. And it was expressly phrase that if we had to prosecute and convict someone, that was a regulatory failure. As you recall, we got over 1,500 elite convictions. We haven't seen too
2: many since then, though, have we?
0: No, but again, that's the point. So yes, they don't know what they don't know, but it's not hard to do what Ed Gray did start there. Who are the people with courage and competence who are willing to have a very limited career in public service if that's necessary to do the right thing? I like that part.
2: I look at regular politicians and I say, wouldn't it be better if you're willing to be a one-termer and to say the things that no one else has said than to try and be a lifer and do absolutely nothing remarkable?
0: And feel good about yourself.
2: Yeah. To me, it doesn't make any sense. I would rather do my four years or two and a half if I got kicked out, but do it with honor and bust some chops and fix things than to just coast along and keep going on with it. I would definitely be in the group that said, yeah, sign me up for one term or less.
0: Well, you have to be willing to do the things that will make you unelectable. I'm not positive that if someone actually did that, they would be defeated for re-election necessarily. They certainly wouldn't get donors, (laughs) big donors. (laughs) They wouldn't get donors. They wouldn't get party support. Right. Yeah. So we had a bunch of people who had exactly that, who were willing to lose their jobs. And we did. (laughs) But you keep your sanity and your conscience and you don't have to avoid looking in mirrors.
2: One of the things that is really painful, having not really had a great deal of experience with whistleblowers, then having met your band of friends who are all serial whistleblowers such as yourself, and to realize that once you cross into the whistleblower territory, you're perpetually having to try to explain to people that you did the right thing and having to tell the story because ultimately they'll do everything they can to silence you and to make you ineffective. Yeah, Just thinking about Michael Winston's story, there's so many people that you hear the things they did when they raised their hand and said something ain't right and their lives
0: become scary. Yeah, let me give you two specific examples of your point from the savings and loan debacle from high-level officials who would have been considered the adults in the room, unlike us. (laughs) So one was the chief of staff. To the new chairman that removed our jurisdiction over Lincoln Savings, his name was Jim Boland. And he knew Mike Patriarcha from the old days and said to him, we did you guys a favor when we removed your jurisdiction over Lincoln Savings because Keating is so powerful, they'll get you in ways you'll never know you've been gotten. That is word for word. So obviously that's what they felt, <laughs> you know, that they had to give in to him, give him this incredible sweetheart deal that led to incredible tragedy because otherwise he would get them. And the other one was Jordan Luke. Jordan Luke was the chief counsel, top lawyer in the agency, talking to me. And this is not a friendly talk. He's trying to put a shot across my bow in Nabletorne and he goes, you know why Danny wall, the new chairman of the agency after Ed Gray, doesn't trust you bill. No. Well, because you took on Jim Wright, Jim Wright was this incredibly powerful speaker of the house. And I go, what? <laughs> you said, well, first he thought substantively Jim Wright is so powerful. And so vindictive that you put the entire agency at risk by not giving in to his demands to do sleazy things for the frauds, including, by the way, fire Joe Selby on the quote unquote grounds that he was homosexual. The second thing is it meant that Danny didn't trust your judgment. Because it meant you would do something so insane in terms of your own risk and therefore you couldn't be trusted. So I think your point, those two illustrations, you were dead on in terms of your analytics. That's exactly what it is. And those guys both thought that they were morally superior because of the positions they took.
2: I remember when Richard Bowen was talking about what he experienced as he tried to get his story out to Congress about the fraud he had seen and him trembling at home, fearing getting in his car that it would blow up. It is not a safe environment to be somebody who's a man or woman of integrity within the system.
0: You're telling this to the guy that Keating put in writing? Highest priority, get black, kill them dead. (laughs) I was trying to lead to that, but you
2: got the yes. That's exactly my point, though, Bill. We are in a country that the libertarians won, Going back to the 60s, they have done everything they could to rip this joint down to the bones. And the power elite, the powers that be that live a different life than we do, have empowered that mindset of free markets, all the things you've already stated. We didn't get here overnight, and we certainly didn't get to this point by only a couple of bad eggs. We got here by an extreme level of disregard for mankind and the global citizen. And the power elite are winning every day. There's capture of our government by industry And the revolving door from industry to government and back to industry again. How do we put an end to that when we have the proverbial wolf guarding the hen house here?
0: How could we do this when the people that would pass the laws are in on it? Qui custodiet? So you can't end it. There's no such thing in this context as a decisive battle that you win it and it's over. Every generation has to fight for a rule of law and democracy and some basic humanity towards each other and doing your duty. So I'd make a friendly amendment. They're not libertarians. They're faux libertarians. Okay. Fair enough. They make their money off of the government. Typically, they constantly manipulate the government. I like markets. I like effective markets. <laughs> you know, I got no problem with effective markets. I saw my job as helping to create those things. Sure. So part of the answer, and it comes back to your broader question about how do you work as an effective regulator? We had two slogans. And one is immediately to the statement you just made. It's a variation of, the house of orange by the way in the netherlands that eventually won a hundred year civil war against the most powerful army in the world which was then spain the short version of it is it is not necessary to hope in order to persevere mm. so we persevered the second Slogan was never chase mice while lions roam the campsite and currently regulatory leaders and currently meaning the last 20 plus years exclusively chase mice. And actually they don't chase mice. They have minions who they direct to chase mice and they rarely catch even the mice. Is this just
2: a distraction technique? give the appearance that they're doing something while doing nothing
0: it isn't just that you feel you're supposed to be doing something but yes it's resumes as well so remember in the great financial crisis response they didn't prosecute any of the elite criminals but they brought civil cases not against the individuals but against the corporation where effectively, the CEO was getting immunity for himself by giving a bunch of shareholder money to the government. It's a win-win. And so I guarantee you, every one of those Justice Department lawyers has on his resume negotiated $12 billion settlement with XYZ Bank (laughs) as a key thing. and. Of course, what happened to the stock price in almost every case when they announced those settlements went
2: up. And that's something. Bill, I really appreciate you taking us through this. It's easy to see the problem. Well, it's not always even easy. It is if you can have clear eyes and have somebody eliminate the noise so you can just hear the facts. But having a real effective approach to attacking it is usually the thing that we don't have. We hear the problem, we don't hear the solution. And to me, what I heard was we need people with moral conviction that are willing to be a short timer in their career to make a difference and make an impact. And each generation is going to have to fight this fight. There's no one silver bullet. It's going to come up again. We have to find a way to put it down.
0: Yeah, and here's the good news about that. The constant thing from Richard Bowen, from Michael Winston, from Joe Selby, even when he was driven out of government, from Mike Patriarca, from me, is all of us would do it again in a heartbeat. Knowing what the outcome would be, we'd do it again. You're a hero. No, we're not. We're normal people. And we had the great privilege to work with other people like us. And there were lots of them. There are a whole bunch of really, really good people. And again, it's easy to recruit. If you hire the Mike Patriarchas of the world, the right people will flock to work with him or her.
2: Well, I'm going to let that be the final word, sir. You are. A brilliant man. I appreciate you taking the time. It's been too long. It's so nice to have been able to say hello to your lovely wife, June, and just to hear your voice again, Bill. It means a lot to me. I'm really glad to have had you on, and I hope you won't be a stranger.
0: Not at all. It's good to be back. Thank you.
2: Absolutely. All right, friends. My name's Steve Grumbine. I'm the host of Macro and Cheese. My guest, Bill Black. Please check out our other podcasts, they're evergreen they're intended to be there for you to learn we're a non-profit we're all volunteers we don't make a lot of money here as an organization but it does take money to keep these lights on so by all means please consider becoming a donor bill thank you so much once more for joining me we are out of here
1: M-M-G. macro and cheese is produced by andy kennedy Descriptive writing by Virginia Cox, and promotional artwork by Andy Kennedy. Macro and Cheese is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to Macro and Cheese, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressive. I want the truth!